0: Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me Russell Hogg. My guest today is journalist, essayist and author Ed West. Ed has a great number of strings to his bow including his extremely popular Substack The Wrong Side of History uh, of which I am an absolutely huge fan. But the reason I invited him on the podcast today is that he has written some history books and these for me at least they fill a really important gap um because sometimes when i when i read history i feel just overwhelmed and it's as if it's as if i've wandered into you know the middle of a conversation somebody else's conversation halfway through and i get completely lost and ed has written a series of quite short books mainly on english history which give you a really good introduction to their subjects and as just one example ed wrote a book on the war of the roses and and after that, I felt for the first time, I had some understanding of what had been going on in that period. And the latest of his books is on the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings and Alfred the Great, which is what we are here to talk about today. So welcome, Ed, to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Russell. It's, uh, it's an honour, a pleasure.
0: So shall we, shall we start at the start, which I guess, I guess is the Romans leaving Britain, which I think is sometime around about 4.10. And well, Britain seems a very nice place. So, why do the Romans leave?
1: Um, what's not with the problem with this uh, era? Obviously, is the lack of sources. The Western Roman Empire was was collapsing, uh, and with that collapse, um, the the number of people writing things down and the number of things being recorded and kept goes down drastically in the Western Roman Empire. So, it's very vague. I mean, even the most well known story about this is that 410, the Britons um, appeal to the Romans for help because they are been overwhelmed by invaders from Germany. And the Romans at that point say, you know, look after your own affairs. But even this source, they might not have been talking about Britain. The source is so confused, they might even be talking about a town in southern Italy. <laughs> even this very, very basic level of understanding is, is sort of unknown to us. I mean, what we do know is that there was increasing disorder in roman britain in the in, uh, province of britannia and we know this from mostly from things like archaeology people start burying so in the fourth century a lot more people start burying their possessions which is always a bad sign
0: mm.
1: the biggest uh, moment in english history of people burying stuff it's got the most until the 17th century in the civil war that's the only period was comparable we also know from the archaeology that there's a huge Increase in the number of skeletons which show signs of violent death i think one study showed that in this period the sub-roman britain you know which is the fourth fifth and sixth century there's five times as many proportionally the skeletons are people being killed so something's <laughs> going seriously wrong the the and the, the western empire was collapsing and it collapsed you know quite slowly over 200 years so the roman empire doesn't really collapse in italy until about the sixth century when the aqueducts are destroyed in the wars, and, and that's when the Roman population collapses. But the periphery provinces start, start collapsing first. Uh, and Britannia was the most periphery of all of them. There's always signs that the, the Roman military presence starts to decrease. The forts become smaller, and the forts start to move closer towards the continent. So obviously, the, Romans, the Roman state infrastructure is unable to support an army anymore, uh, and it's kind of drawing in a little bit. Uh, And then there's also was a rebellion by the by the Britons themselves, the Romano Britons. That again, we don't really know what happened. They seem to have basically overthrown the Romans in some sense. And then there's almost a sense that there might have been some sort of regret about it. (laughs) It has been compared to another great moment in British history where we leave Europe. (laughs) But the most the most important uh, moment of this era is that at some point. The Saxons start arriving, which is, you know, generic name of the tribes: the Saxons, the Angles, the Jutes, and, and also the Franks and Frisians. All these German tribes who are sli- slightly related, and who also basically come to form the people who were later called the Dutch as well. Uh, and they start arriving in uh, large numbers in in the fourth century, and by the late fourth century, and by the fifth century, they are large enough that they are starting to sort of take over. Now, the traditional, the traditional kind of story. Is that in Kent, the the tribe called the Jutes who came from Jutland, which is in De- they were invited over by the one of the sort of Roman sub kings who were taken over. So once the Roman once the Roman authority sort of collapses, there are these sort of local rulers who take over. You might call them kings or warlords of, of some sort. And one of them, he's kind of got a very bad name, is Vortigern, who's apparently the sort of king of Kent or the ruler of Kent. Although Vortigern might just mean king, so we're not entirely sure that was his real name. He's supposedly invites over these the Jutes to sort of be, to be sort of basically mercenaries to protect the locals from attacks from like Scotland and from Ireland, where there's, you know, piracy becomes a huge problem. And obviously, you know, the story of St. Patrick is a sort of good example of that the, there was a lot of pi- Irish pirates and pirates from all over the place, so, you know, as order collapses and piracy obviously becomes a big problem again. So they apparently invite this, these kind of Germans over and eventually the more and more Germans come until such point that they basically just take over and they establish the kingdom of Kent. So that's the origin story. Obviously, you know, historians go through that and there's lots of formulaic stuff. You know, Mark Morris talks about this. He says, you know, brothers with names that begin in the same, with alliterative names. That's a very formulaic thing in myth, you know, Romulus and Remus. Mm -hmm. So Hengist and Horsa, I mean, mythological characters, no evidence existed. I mean, on the other hand, when you go through Anglo-Saxon histories, they do tend to call their children all by the same... Like, you know, no. the great brothers are called Ethelred, Ethelbert, Wolf, and no, his father was Wolf, and um, Ethelstan and Ethelbert or something anyway. So, you know, there is, they do have that habit. So I think maybe, and, you know, the other thing is they arrived in three ships. That's another formulaic kind of story. But on the other hand, Christopher Columbus arrived in three ships. So, it, you know, maybe it happens. We don't really know. Another thing is, were they invited? Hmm, there's no... There's no real evidence they're invited, uh, and my suspicion is that story was probably made up later because later it would sort of the story would be sort of taken over by the Saxons themselves. But in this period, most of this is written by this man called Gildas, um, who's living in Brittany in the sixth century a bit later. So as the Saxons and the Angles moved into eastern Britain, the natives fled further west into what's now Wales and southwest uh, Britain, which later became Cornwall. Uh, and lots of them also moved to Armorica um, on the continent, which became Brittany. So, um, St. Gildas was writing from Brittany and he told this story in the sixth century. He's our main source. And he, he's a kind of character I very much empathize with. Very depressive. The country's all going to hell. <laughs> Immigration has destroyed Britain. Um, and obviously, you know, he was completely right. Uh, and he claims the rulers of Britain for for being you know so decadent and sinful and he lists the problem is he lists all these kind of characters who've done all these terrible things and we don't know anything else about these guys it's very frustrating as a historian to know who he's actually talking about who are these people he hates um but his thing was you know the saxons and he he hates the saxons he goes on about them and he calls them dogs and he hates dogs as well and he says eventually they they were able to sort of claw their way across Britain, and so we know that by about five I think five seven seven is the sort of, is the final point so there were centuries of war like about a century of war and at five seven seven the Anglo-Saxons had had got to the Bristol Channel and effect and so the British population was cut in two and that was basically the end for them so you know England was you know the English what would become the English were dominant then
0: but a thing I haven't understood at all is I feel like if the British would have got into their boats and sailed across to Saxony and landed. The Saxons would have said, "Oh, good! Some slaves have arrived." Right. <laughs> and yet, when the Saxons come to Britain, the, the British seem unable to resist them. And I don't understand what is so intrinsically feeble about us, or <laughs> calling it us is is ridiculous. But what's so intrinsically feeble about the British at that time that without the Romans to protect them, they just they just become victims? And and obviously, we don't have the history to to really know that. But do you have any speculation?
1: Um... It seems contrary because they obviously had access to a civilization, so they can't have been they can't have been technologically inferior to the, the the rivals, the Germans. I mean, the the most likely, well, one popular theory about the Germans at the time, you know, the general German group, is that they obviously had some population pressure, so there were lots of people, and I mean, right at the time, we talk about the womb of nations in this period in Scandinavia, southern Scandinavia, and northern Germany. There were obviously lots and lots of hungry mouths to feed and lots of desperate men in particular who needed land. And Britain, you know, Britain is, especially the sort of southeast part of the island, is very fertile. It's a very rich resource. And this is what the Vikings came later, This is why they were attracted to it. While I think at the time, there was probably a lot of pressure from climate, there was sort of flooding in that part of the world, um, which is a very prone to flooding. So in one sense, they were probably just there might have been sheer numbers of them. They were, you know, warrior culture. There might also have been, you know, this element of, you know, so I the idea I'm fascinated with the Ibn Kaldoon's idea that civilization makes people less aggressive and then they, they become vulnerable to other groups who are sort of more barbaric, basically, who are more violent and then just sort of move in, which is a big feature.
0: I suppose if you if you've got a professional army, by definition, everybody else who's not in the army. Isn't isn't getting much practice in in warfare, so so the Romans have kind of taken away the war fighting abilities right. of the Britons, maybe. Yeah. So
1: the most 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 the population. I mean, this is all, I mean, obviously, it's speculation, but most population probably would have been farmers or civilians of some sort. While if you have a warrior culture, the people who are fighting, you know, the, a lot of young men would just be fighting all day long, and they would be, and, a, and a, quite a small number of people who are good at violence. But if they have swords, are going to be able to take over much. A much larger population. It's possible that the Romano-British population was also very divided at the time.
0: Yes, I mean, if you've got a whole load of little kingdoms, each kingdom is incredibly weak, and then and then perhaps nobody helps. You know, the kingdom that's being attacked.
1: Right. So, I mean, Gildas does say there was lots of division in that thing. But on the other hand, you know, these Germanic tribes were kind of tri- tribal kingdoms themselves, so they weren't particularly united. They didn't unite until you know the time of of Alfred. I mean, there is also. Further factor is that there may have been a disease element. I mean, this is reading Carl Harper's book about the fate of Rome. Right. I think you had Carl, didn't you? you had yes,
0: him? I had Carl Harper on the podcast. He was very good, very interesting. Yeah, I,
1: I listened to that. He's he's a he's a fascinating guy. And the, I don't know if it's him or something else that the bubonic plague going around in the sixth century might have, for various reasons, affected the British population more and might have had a bit of a death knell effect, especially urban populations suffered more from the diseases so they were much more vulnerable and this is you know this is obviously much more noticeable in the middle east where the the kind of eastern Iranian empire was very vulnerable for the to the arabs who just moved in who weren't affected by the plague so much so i like the victorian histories of this i always find quite amusing because it's all about how oh, the saxons were more vigorous and manly <laughs> and basically the undercurrents they were sort of racially superior because you know they're english compared to the welsh and they were sort of didn't they were and while the sort of romans and the british were sort of made effeminate by plumbing and stuff like this. <laughs> but I, I don't really know. I just I mean all we can speculate is that judging from the archaeology and probably the, the genetic studies, that it must have been a very quite violent and chaotic time and, and probably a very unpleasant time to be alive.
0: How would you feel then about this there's, there's this huge debate that goes on in in history Twitter. I don't know if you follow it as to whether or not as to whether or not you should call this the Dark Ages. And I kind of feel it's not a bad term for what was going on in Britain. I don't know what was going on in the rest of Europe, but certainly in Britain, the Dark Ages doesn't seem a bad, doesn't seem no, a I, bad term.
1: It's, it's much older. I think it, the controversy of Dark Ages, I think it must, I think it's the 90s. I think it's partly, I think people confuse Dark Ages and Middle Ages, and it, and it comes down to, you know, it goes all the way back to the 14th century when, you know, the concept of the Middle Ages was first being articulated. And it's become more pronounced in the 18th century when there was this kind of, you know, anti-Middle Age concept. The Middle Age was just a bit in between antiquity and the Renaissance. And it was sort of, you know, sorts of superstition and church sorcery and kind of backwardsness. But, you know, the Dark Age specifically refers to the early medieval period in my, and, and, and it's a completely, you know, so when people say... Oh, you're you're accusing like look at these amazing cathedrals like you can't say it's Dark Ages. Like, yeah, but that's the 12th century. Obviously, no one thinks that's Dark Ages. The Dark Ages specifically from the fall of Rome to, I mean, either Charlemagne is probably the the thing. I mean, after Charlemagne in, on the continent, when when he you know he hired he employed lots of monks and the number of available documents from that period on massively increases because the available documents from about 500 400 maybe in britain but a bit, a bit later on the continent to about 800 ad is absolutely unbelievably thin the number of you know written words we have you know you see the graphs it just drops so sharply yeah as the late roman period and then from charlemagne a bit later in england because it you know Alfred the great was the big one there but from eight from about eight hundred to a thousand, you start seeing a real uptick. And so the dark ages, you know, you can say it's like the early medieval period, which is like four hundred to nine hundred. Maybe, and I think that's a perfectly because the darkness refers to the lack of sources because we just don't know anything about the period. It's just so lots of stuff we n- might understand about it might be completely wrong. For you we know, you know, just discovering one document from this period would completely transform our understanding. <laughs> I mean, for example, like, you know, Alfred the Great. We'll come to this, but Alpha the Great. Had this biography written, which is a very important source. But some people think Athelstan, his grandson, also had a biography, and it was just lost. I yeah. mean, if that was ever found, and I don't think it ever will be, it would completely transform our understanding of English history in this period. Yeah, uh, and Athelstan would be probably known as the great as well. But it's it's literally a, a sort of period of darkness for most people.
0: You say that, but we have you know the uh, highly reliable Gildas, who you mentioned, and he writes about Aurelius. Ambrosianus, which I think is his name for King Arthur. So, um, do you buy into the King Arthur story, or do you think it's all nonsense?
1: No, I don't think there's anyone. Aurelius Ambronius, and sometimes even Artorius, the name Arthur is mentioned um, in the Welsh poems, I think, is, I think it's the ninth century. It's, it's quite early, comparatively. I mean, yeah, that's three centuries later, but there's obviously a, a story of someone called Arthur. But it literally would have had no resemblance to anything. I mean, the Arthur story comes from, you know, the sort of glory days of 12th century French court poetry, which is when the sort of the great idea of chivalry came about. At that point, you know, when, you know, the French-speaking aristocracy of of France and, and England and, and much else in Europe, you know, they saw the kind of rocky periphery of the British Charles as a kind of very romantic place. And so stories...
0: Anything goes.
1: Yeah, like Cornwall, Wales, Lothian, Cumbria, those are sort of, sort of magical places where, you know, it's all misty and, you know, this is a great <laughs> location for a thing. But, the, the, you know, the Arthur re- represents there the ideals of a much later kingship. Although, you know, Tim Holland says that King Athelstan, who was king of England while the Arthur story w- was sort of germinating and who, who also sort of claims to be king of all of Britain and, and basically became king of all Britain, he, he, he got very far into Scotland, Caledonia. He thinks he might have been basically the, the inspiration for, for King Arthur. But there was no, there's no likelihood that any anyone vaguely remem- resembling that really existed. There were stories of heroic British leaders who kind of pushed back the Saxons. So, you know, this period for about 150 years when there were constant war. But, you know, the general direction was that the Saxons were pushing the Britons west. Have
0: you read um, Bernard Cornwall's Arthur books? The Warlord trilogy.
1: Uh no, I've read his Alfred books.
0: Right, right. Well, I I just strongly, strongly recommend his Arthur trilogy. It's absolutely terrific. He takes the myth and he tries to ground it in, you know, some sort of plausible history of, of the time.
1: That does sound that does sound on my street. I should probably
0: I think it's much, much better than his uh than his Alfred or Uther books. I mean that's just my that's just my take. Okay, so we better better move on. So you said, well, you kind of told me. So the the Saxons get all the way to the Bristol Channel, and is it an obliteration of the locals, or is there some kind of merging of populations, or is or is just is everybody either dead or enslaved or shoved off into Wales and Cornwall?
1: Um, it's interesting because that's actually changed. I think the general consensus has changed since the first and second edition of my book. So I think I might <laughs> it. the Anglo-Saxon genocide theory about whether the Anglo-Saxons pushed the natives out, or they or they were just a sort of leap band of mostly men who intermarried and um I mean intermarried might be a more <laughs> romantic. <laughs> and and uh, you know,
0: long courtship.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of flowers and taking them out for dinner. Um I mean that's been a very like hotly contested issue, and it's obviously highly political because it it goes to the heart of how the English see themselves. And and in the 19th century, when English culture was very I suppose very confident. And there was a sort of belief that there was, you know, sort of Anglo Saxon master race, and almost, I mean, we use the phrase, but, and there was also a, a general kind of pro German feeling amongst the, you know, the English intellig- intelligentsia. There was a general belief that, yes, the Anglo Saxons must have pushed them out because the English and Welsh are so different and the English are much more like the Germans. And obviously, because of certain events, German, German nationalism became <laughs> quite in the 20th century. And then there was, you know, there was also the kind of movement in archaeology, you know, the pots, not people that, you know, the culture changes, but the people weren't. I mean, I always find it, if this became very popular, this idea after the Second World War, that people don't actually massacre each other in large numbers and push them out. It's like, the Second World War has just happened. I mean, what <laughs> do you think that doesn't happen? Um and so I think like 20 years ago, the general consensus was that was the, the, the Anglo-Saxon DNA in the English population was quite low, like 10%, maybe even low as 5%. But now it's gone much, much higher. Now the, the general consensus is that it's like 30%, quite high. So it was quite a mass migration. And certainly the British population in the east of England were were completely moved. They either moved out or killed. There was basically no the DNA studies of the population there from like the sixth century shows there was absolutely no British DNA. Later there was, so the people living there now obviously have because there's been so much movement across England. Right. But there definitely was, a, a, you know, wide, a widespread pushing them out. On the other hand, especially the further west you go, know, there must have been sort of villages where the British were still living because, you know, the the code, the law codes refer to, uh, you know, different punishments for like the Welsh and the English. And there were sort of little Britons, as they were called.
0: Uh, yeah, the poor old British, uh, they get the Romans are sort of calling them Britunculi or whatever it is, yeah. and treat them badly, and now the Saxons come along and <laughs> even worse.
1: Yeah, so I um, mean, but this is so, I mean, this is so disputed. I mean, maybe 10 years' time it, it would, it'll be completely different. I mean, some people think that there was, so there's obviously records of Germans before the fall. I mean, there were German mercenaries in Roman times. So some people think there were, there were. So Considerable like German populations in East Anglia, anyway, all the time. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, that some of the Britons would have spoken the German language. You know, I'm skeptical of that, although, you know, there are much more serious historians than me that think that. But for, for one thing, the fact that the newcomers didn't embrace Christi- uh, Christianity was basically driven out. So they weren't joining a sort of culture, a similar culture on the other side of the sea. They were pushing that culture out. Uh, you know, British culture was completely. Right, so you know, because in these cases, you know, religion and identity are, are so central. The fact that the church, the Christian Christian religion was completely pushed out suggests to me that the newcomers were essentially quite alien to the people there. You know, another issue is why English became dominant as a language. Now it was once thought that because some of the Britons spoke Latin and some of them spoke Brittonic, the ancestor Welsh, that you know, neither language was able to resist Anglo-Saxon government, but I just think there probably were quite a lot of Anglo-Saxons, and the there was quite a large population movement. And then, you know, in time, the sort of remaining British pockets just became English-speaking, or you know, Old English-speaking. Alfred,
0: you know, a key part of the Alfred story is his is his Christian kingship and the relationship of Alfred and the Anglo-Saxons with the Vikings is is, is partly about Christianity against paganism. And there's sort of a there's sort of a big irony here because when the Anglo-Saxons arrive. They are the pagans, and they do they wipe out the existing Christian practices. Yeah, when do they when do they sort of show some remorse and and come to become Christian themselves?
1: Well, the five nine seven is is the traditional date. So Kent at this time, because it was the closest, to the continent had the most Frankish influence, and the Franks had become Christian towards the late fifth century. The Frankish elites slowly started speaking the. The kind of post-Roman language of the people in Gaul, and which became Francais, you know, um French. And, and the king of Kent was a man called Ethelbert. And his wife, Bertha, was she was Frankish and she was a Christian. And she, it was through her influence that a Catholic m- missionary was allowed to come to Kent. And then five nine, you know, St. Augustine. And in 597, a lot of, they say 10,000 Kentish men were converted. I mean, like 10,000 is like the number they always use in, in medieval times. Just like <laughs> It's probably not 10,000. I mean, the population of the whole kingdom um, must have been in in six figures at most. And then eventually, Ethelbert becomes Christian himself. And, and, you know, he's a classic kind of example, the secondary convert. So the Clovis, the first Frankish king, also converted because of his wife. So, you know, it's a running theme that Christianity becomes such to have an influence because um, it's, it seems to be disproportionately popular amongst women. And that's that's found all throughout its history. And it's great news for historians because once the church comes in, then the literacy <laughs> comes in. So <laughs> before this, there is almost there is almost nothing for historians work in, And, you know, the, obviously the Latin alphabet is much easier to read. The runic is, is very hard and doesn't allow for much complexity. But now um, there's Christianity, there are the monks keep records. And they start schools and law codes are written from the point of Ethelbert. So, you know, through Ethelbert's family, Christianity starts spreading the kingdom. You know, by this point, so traditionally, you know, I should mention the Heptarchy. It's traditionally, you know, there are seven kingdoms of Anglo Saxon England. But, you know, the Heptarchy was a term only later apl- applied, really. So, again, it's very sports, but lots of the things like that are kind of easy to remember, probably aren't true. Obviously, the saying Seven Kingdoms influences Game of Thrones, but by the Time Alfred comes, there are only really basically four kingdoms, and earlier on, there are probably like as many as 12. But like Kent is one of the smaller ones, and Essex is like one of the very smallest ones. Essex becomes Christian as well. And then the, the big one is Northumbria. Northumbria becomes Christian through through King Edwin, who is involved. And so, at this point, there's loads of complications because there's just loads of sort of dark ages warlords fighting each other. And King Edwin gets chased and he ends up in East Anglia, then he comes back. And then there's sort of famous meeting, which is later called by Bede, where, you know, he asks his counsellors, should we adopt this new religion? And then we say, oh, we don't know. And then there's this famous line from Bede. And I mean, maybe maybe he just made it up, but it's such a great line. (laughs) It's such a thoughtful, great moment in English literature. You know, to paraphrase him, he says, you know, my lord, we we are like a sparrow going through a hall and it's gold outside. And we come inside. It's nice and warm. Was by the fire, and then but what goes out afterwards, we cannot possibly know. And his point was basically the skeptical one of like, who knows? But you know, this <laughs> this new religion obviously has something to offer, and it also for those kings, it also offered real prestige, you know, because from this point on, the kings right. they consciously imitate the Roman Empire emperors as the Franks did, you know, all these sorts of little kind of tiny kings ruling these very barren places, which are very. And also the Anglo-Saxons remember, they thought the Romans, a lot of them thought the Romans were giants. They were surrounded by these giant buildings and they had no idea how they were built. And they just thought, who are these people who built this? But with this religion, you can sort of attach yourself to this, the prestige of this old civilization and its and its rulers who you are vaguely aware ruled the entire world. And it also kind of links you to a much more sophisticated Mediterranean civilization. And so once once Christianity is is established um, in Northumbria by Edwin, we then see the sort of no- the Northumbrian Renaissance, which is the kind of first real flowering of really very sophisticated culture. And and it comes in the most furthest part of England, which is kind of interesting. But at this point, you know, the most important example of this is the Venerable Bede, who writes so much. You know, he writes the first in- history of the English people, and he refers to, you know, the Anglia. He refers to this concept of the English people, which is as far as we know, not spoken about before then. Although there is one Italian cleric who maybe mentions it. Um and it's just it's so, so important for our understanding. So he 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 as a young man um would have spoken to people who knew the first the first missionaries. So he has a sort of a real connection. And he at last he sort of opens up this world. And from that point on, it's not it's not really entirely dark anymore and this is this is you know this is the eighth century now
0: i was interested in what you said about trying to borrow prestige because you mentioned that i think it's offer produces a gold coin yeah and he copies what the Arabs put on their gold coins? Yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> some, 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 sort of, some sort of borrowed prestige, and I think that they managed to get the, 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 you know, they copy it all wrongly, and and they've no idea that they're actually uh, sort of presumably uh, giving prestige to a completely different religion. But this is what a gold coin looks like.
1: Yeah, you know, I saw that coin in um, in the British Library in the uh, exhibition. It's very funny. Yeah, it just says this. You know, there is no gods but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And you just imagine these people in the West Midlands just like. Copying this, This says what is, you know what does that mean? I have no idea. Some big empire far away that it um, must be good. So the, you know, bead was so he's a sort of product that the monasteries are are what really spreads a, a sort of civilization at this point.
0: And their letters, the Pope is in touch with them. You know, the it's it's very strange. You've got very low literacy. You've got very little being produced by way of text, but nonetheless you know, people are coming and going across the continent. I mean, Alfred himself, when he's yeah. uh, when he's a child, he visits Rome twice when he's four and when he's six. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are moving around. It's kind of this two sides to it, where it's incredibly parochial and, you know, not exactly dark ages, but dark age adjacent. And yet at the same time, there are literate people, you know, crossing boundaries uh, you know over huge distances.
1: Yes. And when uh, and then once you know once uh, you know Archbishop of Canterbury in this point, when they when they go to being made by the Pope, they have to go to Rome and, and um there is, you know, one poor guy who turns in Rome and sort of drops dead immediately. <laughs> I mean it must it was a like incredibly dangerous journey, um, not just in terms of falling, you know, to disease or whatever, but you know, just it was a very, very violent society at this point. You know, Western Europe would have been very, very violent, even by later medieval standards. The funny story is even in the eighth century, early eighth century in Syria, the, you know, there's local records that these sort of strange blonde people turn up with yellow hair and they ask who who are these people? And they, you know, say, We're we're from the furthest shores of the of the ocean. We're we're Saxons. or you know, or maybe they say Angles, but they're you know, they're from Britain. And once Christianity came along, it sort of opened up this world. So they want to make a pilgrimage. And the local officials in Syria say, Yeah, sure. I mean, you're going your way, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I have no idea why you're here, but but it particularly opens up this kind of go to Rome. So you yeah, you see Alfred's Alfred's father took him to, to Rome and and that entire sort of route through France and Italy becomes much very sort of well trodden. The Saxon school was set up in um in Rome we're not entirely sure it's probably by the west saxon king who's, i'm not sure his name is pronounced ine or in uh ine uh who was one of the sorts of considered one of the sort of like important early kings but again we we know he made some laws we don't know much else about him unfortunately but yeah there, so there was a, an obviously an english presence an anglo-saxon presence christianity completely opens this kind of culture to you know to to the wider western europe
0: Anyway, shall we shall we turn away from the uh, you know slightly boring goody two shoes Christians and uh,
1: boring Christian and and move on? they laughing for giving and stuff. So boring.
0: So <laughs> yeah. so tell us about the Vikings, basically.
1: Yeah, so the Vikings. Um, one of the things I've written about quite a lot is that is the is the sort of Vikings are are now often sort of portrayed as sort of goodies. I mean, in the Vikings TV series, they're sort of sexy and. And okay, they they raid places and like chop heads off and stuff, but they're kind of cool and sexy. And the Christians and the monks, particularly, are all sort of hypocrites and sexually oppressed weirdos. And and so we're sort of you know supposed to to root for the Vikings. It's such a deeply fascinating culture, the Norse one, but it's also it's <laughs> deeply terrifying and sinister and and really uh, very cruel and weird. So I mean, I I've no. You know, I don't pretend that I would be a sort of impartial observer of this culture war. I, I think the evidence of, of like real deep cruelty is is kind of very strong. I mean, you know, specifically human sacrifice. There, is, there are records of um, people in Britain. Um, there's one Bolly in Man, which was definitely a result of human sacrifice. And there are lots of records. That's one of those sort of areas where you know the Vikings are largely literate, and most of what we know about them. I mean, they're almost entirely. Different. Most of what we know about them is either written later by the Icelandics, who right, it is precious records of of what their ancestors did, or it was written about by very hostile Christian observers, bishops who sort of said. I mean, traditionally for a long time, historians said, "Oh, this must be you know Christian propaganda," but you know, the human sacrifice stuff is definitely not propaganda. That definitely happened. So you know, they they arrive. First in England, just towards the end of the 8th century, there's a record. I mean, there, there may have been other cases, but they definitely turn up in Portland, which is why Weymouth and Dorsets, uh lovely part of the world now. <laughs> but they, yeah, they turn up and and um, they apparently from Norway, although, you know, the records are never sure. They sort of lump in Norwegians and Danes together because they're all just sort of like Vikings, aren't they? Uh, and he kills a local sort of uh, official and then they 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 know they turn up in Kent a couple of and there are a few more scuffles in the eight eight thirties. And and we know they're also at this point going around Ireland a lot, because Ireland, I mean, Ireland has a, a very sophisticated lit, literary sort of literature culture, but it's also not it's not unitary, it's very divided, and it's full of waterways as well. So it's the perfect place of Vikings. But they, you know, they have a few raids in England. We know they they raid France, but then like from eight six five, the there's obviously there's this huge acceleration and the the what initially was just raiding parties turns into huge numbers. You know you have like groups of thirty or forty boats coming along the rivers. At this point they they turn up in Northumbria, which has two feuding families. It's very politically divided, and then they and they conquer York. And this is when all the you know these are where all the myths come along, which is shown in the in in the sort of Viking series, of Ragnar Lothbrok, you know, and his his uh, Supposedly his three sons. And um we're not sure how real these, you know, there's either Boneless, who's, you know, was a figure, but I'm not, you know, how they these guys are related, we're not entirely sure. But we know they conquer York, the kingdom of Northumbria, uh, and then they soon conquer East Anglia and they kill the King Edmund. Uh, and this later gets slightly embellished. You know, the story he sort becomes a Saint Sebastian figure covered in arrows, and he becomes a saint. And then and then they, they basically conquer Mercia. And so at this point, you know, there's only one kingdom left by 871, and that's Wessex.
0: As a Scotsman, everyone talks about Wessex and the sort of assumption that you know where it is. <laughs> I've always been extremely vague as to where exactly Wessex is.
1: W- Wessex um, is, is basically the Thames Valley. So, um, you know, the, Alfred the Great was born in Wantage, which is now in Berkshire. The, the capital of West Hicks was Winchester, which is Hampshire. So it's really the cut south central, slightly leading west part of England.
0: And for an American or non-English audience, that would kind of be the bottom slice of England. Up, yeah. I don't know what a hundred miles.
1: So London is the biggest city in the southeast, and then you've got Bristol, the biggest city in the southwest. And west of Bristol is is the peninsula, um, and it's basically imagine the bits between London and Bristol. So West Six was um, is around the 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 Thames. So the Thames would later become very central for the formation of Kingdom England, and um, and like the the entire state developed along the. If you look at all the royal palaces, Greenwich, Hampton Court, Westminster, Windsor, they're all along the Thames because the royal, but the English royal family was based on the Thames, and the the Thames Valley is even today the richest part of the UK. Uh, it's got the best farmland. It's the, the most connected was amongst the most connected to the continent. So it's always, if you control the Thames Valley, you normally have, you're normally able to sort of domineer over the rest of the of the island. And that's why I sort of like receive pronunciations or developed around there. But at this point, Wessex is sort of ascendant. So Mercia, which was the, you know, the Midlands, but a wider Midlands, all the way to London, really, that was dominant in the ninth century and the offer and you know, but that was, Wessex is starting to become the ascendant kingdom, the dominant one. But it also has the exact same problems of the Vikings. And these become per- perilous. And all these kingdoms fight amongst each other constantly. And it's only in the 860s when Mercia is now in- invaded by the Vikings and Nottingham is besieged. It was then actually called Snottingham, which I always find. <laughs>
0: That's good. <laughs> Not surprised they changed it, really.
1: Uh, the sheriff of Snottingham wouldn't be the same and this is i think this this is basically the kind of first instance where the the, the armies of mercy and, and wessex are fighting together and they both realize this is like a serious threat to to both of us and there are also intermarriages so between the the royal families of wessex and mercy at this point so they they're kind of moving close together but then Mer- mercy is over, is basically conquered and that just leaves you know the last kingdom in Bernard Cornwell's uh, words wessex being had been ruled by It was either Four sons or five sons, because his eldest might have been his brother, again, the (laughs) records, and and one daughter. And, you know, there are lots of sons called Ethel something, and and they all sort of die in succession of unknown or grisly ways until the absolute youngest son is Alfred, who had some reason got the different, different name, presumably destined for the church in some way. He was educated, although he only learned to read quite later in life. His Account, his heavily biased biography <laughs> written by a man in his payroll, you know, says he was, you know, very learned and intelligent from an early age and, you know, curious. But he, he was kind of presented as kind of like slightly monkish and neurotic man. But in 871, his next youngest brother, Ethelred, dies, presumably after wounds fighting against the Vikings. And, and Alfred is, you know, he's incredibly young. He's, you know, he's only 19 or something at this time. And all his brothers have died in this succession of ways. And he finds himself in charge of this kingdom, which is completely besieged by the Vikings. And it really does, you know, it really could have been basically over, and uh, and the Vikings could have completely conquered the country. How different it would be, I don't know, because I suppose the culture might have emerged in some similar way. But he he's able to basically buy them off. Um, you know, he's the first one to sort of employ this payment, I even mean, the first one. But he employs the payment, you know, which later becomes known as Dane gelds, becomes not notorious. But it was the only way you could sort of keep them off. You're back for now. And then there's a, a sort of series of struggles. And then towards 877, seven, it gets much more perilous. And the Vikings again attack him. And then on the, the sort of big moment is on the 12th night. So the very start of 878, January 6th, they almost they almost get him and they they attack the royal court, and they kill most of the people and he escapes into the marshes. It was recently flooded, so you could actually see what it looks like. Because <laughs> it's natural marshland, a lot of that part of the world is. And he, he was out, you know, totally with a to- very small band of people, completely in his kingdoms, almost completely conquered. And this was his, you know, like Tolkien talks about the catastrophe. This is the moment when things are so bad that they turn around. You know, this is the moment, the heroic moment. And it's such a it's such a great story because he was almost completely defeated and he was down in luck. And this is when he's visited by St. Cuthbert, who is sort of a northern saint. You know, who says to him, Don't worry, all of Al- Albion will be yours and belong to you and your sons.
0: At this stage, is Saint Cuthbert? Is he a ghost or is he alive? Is he
1: <laughs> very much dead? He's long dead. But although he was actually, he, he was such a figure of reverence that he becomes a. Uh, he was actually made sort of basically uh, ruler of Northumbria after his death. The sort of, I think it was the first person for the North Korean dictator to be dead and and officially uh, head of state of a. Of, <laughs> But no, he 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 was already uh, an important religious figure. This has become significant later because Alfred and his family were seek to become kings of all the Anglo Saxons. And so by Saint Cuthbert being a Northumbrian, right? So yes, yeah, so he's one of ours as well. And this is also the t- the story of the famous story of the cakes, which you know everyone will know is not actually true, and that came up later, and it might have been written in later as well. But it's kind of one of these nice Victorian allegories about Alfreds. You know, he's told off. By this woman, because he said, you know, she doesn't know who he is; just thinks he's a beggar who's been let into a house. And she says, "Mind the cakes or the bread," and he forgets because he's busy thinking about, you know, literally the survival of the country. And then she nags him, and he doesn't say anything. You know, he could just say, "I'm actually the king of Wessex." You know, but it's just a nice story of of his modesty uh, and sort of you know good humour.
0: But it is saying something about how the English want to see their rulers, and sort of what the lesson is is that they're not there to prey on their people i mean i don't but you know this is sort of the message that's been put across no
1: they're not tyrants they're they you know they're there with the consent of the people and they and they're, and they're not um
0: they're not like the tsars of russia for example
1: the americans would say republican virtue when you but it's sort of yeah, a monarchical version of that but yeah so at this point he raises an army and in the spring the in eight seventy eight, there's a big battle we don't know where I mean again all these battles we have no idea where they are I mean they could be 14 places but he defeat he defeats Guthrum the Viking and they have a peace treaty and, and this is when they divide England along uh what becomes the Dane law so that the the Saxons get the Southwest it's the Watling Street is the old Roman road that goes from London to, to basically Mersey and the Saxons get that side and and the Vikings get the other side and that kind of gives him a lot of breathing space to sort of organize the state and at this point he This is what makes him, you know, the great is that he he establishes, for example, a series of like burrs, boroughs, which are sort of fortified towns. So the whole idea is that it means everyone can get to a a fortress within a certain amount of times. If the Vikings turn up, you go inside the town, it's got fortified um, walls around it. I mean, they're not. I mean, it would have been not very sophisticated this time. But and, and they can basically see the Vikings couldn't do sieges because they just had no. I mean, they didn't have the technology but they didn't really have the patience either. they just sort of turned up and like ransacked their their
0: huge problem presumably, is logistics because you know you can't sit outside a city for a month if you're a Viking because because you don't have the food supplies.
1: The Vikings were constantly hungry so you know you have a Viking war band which are several hundred men and they just ravaged the land, but they had they couldn't bring much food with them. so yeah they they had no way of of doing that. so that meant it was very hard for the Vikings to and that also. Spurred the the growth of you know roads, and he also did the thing of he established the. There's a big problem with literacy. That the Vikings had destroyed so many monasteries that there weren't enough people writing down stuff. He wanted everyone. He wanted. He said all his officials, all his sheriffs had to be able to read, because otherwise you couldn't have any sort of state. Uh, and he also ordered that you know four. I mean, it was five different abbeys and monasteries and churches. You know they set up records of what everything that's happening in the country. And everything that they hear about of any interest. So this becomes the anglo saxon Chronicle, which is again so so importantly helpful for understanding. And, and so lots of the our back record of history was written, starts to become written down by these monks because they would have heard this story. Oh, you know, it happened to this king 80 years ago, and they just all write it down. You can say in England, at least, we 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 move out of the dark ages because from that point on, we just know so much more. And then Alfred's. He also has further battles, and he conquers what uh, the site of what you know, the old Roman site of London Londinium, which would basically be the. I mean, London was founded by the Romans, but it was emptied afterwards. There wasn't really continuous settlement. The, the Saxons had settled, had formed a little town, but it would have been tiny, a few miles down called Londonwick. So I don't know how know how well you know London, but you know the, where the theatre land now is now it's Aldwych. That just means the old town, and that's about two miles west of where the old city of London is. Uh, and that would have been a sort of Anglo-Saxon settlement, but he refounded the old Londonian, became Londonburg, which became London, and that would, because of the position, that would become soon become by you know the biggest city in England, uh, and eventually become the capital. So then after that, there are further uh, further attacks. So his enemy Guthrum, who's played, he's played by Michael York in the in the film in the sixties. You know, he's sort of a big blonde, slightly slightly Germanic. I mean, obviously people. The Vikings, you know, after war must have been in their minds. He 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 converts to Christianity because Alfred defeats him. Well, no, sure. the the Vikings always converted to Christianity, then they just ignore it. And then you know they, some of them would like convert six times because it was part of the deal, because the, the Christians thought if, if they convert, they'll abide by you know their oaths, but they never did.
0: It is terribly interesting, the question of oaths as a way that Muslims take oaths terribly, terribly seriously. Christians take them terribly, terribly seriously. And in a way, law and order, you know, really works best when people believe in oaths. And and the Vikings seem to have had a had a sort of a different take.
1: I mean, international law, I mean, I suppose in Europe kind of developed within the Christian framework because you were all subject to certain rules. But if you're not subject to certain rules, there is no law because the Vikings didn't feel they, you know, they didn't feel that they were at all obliged by these oaths because to them the Christian God didn't exist, it was just meaningless. But Guthrum seems to have become genuinely Christian. The Vikings even start having a bit of a cult towards St. Edmund, even though they killed him, which is kind of strange. <laughs> and the Vikings who've settled in East Anglia, they have settled very heavily. So and we don't know the exact, I mean, even DNA can't really help us because the, the DNA of the two groups have been too close. But it was more a religious war in many ways. And any kind of, it wasn't really an ethnic war. But there are obviously very large settlements of Vikings in place, East Anglia and Yorkshire and Linkshire, uh, which we know by all the names because, you know, so many of them have that kind of B or thorpe sound. Um, and they, the Vikings seem to, a lot of them just start settling down and becoming Christian, obviously, and that makes it, without, you know, pushing forward too much, that will make it a lot easier for Alfred's family to eventually conquer all of England's because once the population are Christian. This is obviously what we'd now call a cultural war because it's going across all of all of Northern Europe, Christians and polytheists, you know, the believers in the old gods are, are fighting and the Christians are sort of winning bit by bit because they just have just so much better resources. Mm-hmm. Christian, You would say that they had gotten their side, but, you know, they they had they had the power of of the entire kind of Western world, which at this point was still quite small, you know, considering even Spain was Islamic. The Western world was was basically Italy, France and a few other places that was still a lot, and that was, you know that, that that involved being part of a, a literate, wider culture with a big trade route, uh, and that would give you the advantage. So you know, slowly they were pushing north, and there were Christian missionaries already going in Scandinavia, not with any success so far. But you know, the old the old religion was basically losing. You might even say Alfred was on the right side of history. Um, <laughs> You know, he's such an interesting figure because he suffered terribly through his health. We're not sure what he had. He had he had these kind of stomach condition it might have been psychosomatic we know on his wedding day he had this terrible pain in his stomach um he might have had crohn's disease i mean historical speculation about illnesses is so hard cuz i mean it's mm. so hard but he he was in poor health and he was just incredibly overworked as well and he was doing all sorts of things he was you know learning he was learning latin in his 40s he he was just he was just like a tireless worker and he, and he was very interested in he translated books he,
0: and not just any books i mean these were big was was it him that did the consolations?
1: Very mournful book <laughs> written by someone about to be executed. You know, these are very dark times, so it seems like an appropriate, but he was just very interested in, in philosophy. He was interested in the world. He sent out, you know, he had connections with Rome, but he you know, he would also send money to sort of the missionaries to churches and so as far as India. He, you know, he had this kind of idea that there was much more to this. You know, you and they always took records when Visitors turn up. So visitors, you when know, one visitor turns up, Otka, I think his name was from the very north of Norway and, and describes about what life was there, the reindeers, and you know, and then these three lads just turn up from Ireland and say we're off to we want to go in on pilgrimage. And they just, you know, talk to them about what islands like and they, you know, put them up. You know, so he had this incredible curiosity about well, this great work ethic. He brought in lots of educated teachers from the continent, as many as he could find, um, to sort of spread literacy in his kingdom. And he really had a sense of building estates and building a civilization, which has sort of almost perished. And obviously, you know, the, the the Saxons were very aware that they lived in a in a place that had once been part of this great world, this great empire, where they built these enormous these enormous monuments, which they couldn't possibly conceive of. And he wanted, I, I guess, he he wanted to you know return to civilization to you know to make Rome great again. <laughs> it's not, it's not- I find him, you know, very, very inspiring figure because, you know, on top of that, there was, you know, there are examples. Again, the caveat is that this is written by Asa, who was this Welsh monk who, who wrote, you know, who obviously wrote this incredibly pro-Alfred biography. But then there were instances where he could have executed prisoners because they related to the Vikings who had executed his prisoners or act behavior, you know, well within his rights to act cruel when he wanted to. But, but he, he often showed great mercy. So he obviously took those sort of Christian beliefs very, very seriously. He wasn't, he wasn't anywhere like as cruel and violent as he could have been for a, for a ruler of such a kind of chaotic world. Uh, and he was often, often very sympathetic, you know, forgiving to to his enemies when it, when you know, when he needed to be, when he could be. For example,
0: that was something that came across to me in your book. You know, as I was going through it, just the sheer. The sheer violence of the time before Alfred, you know, all the kingdoms fighting each other, and no king ever seems to make it. You know, to die in bed. You know, it's just constant wars, constant killing, and and I suppose that's what I sort of came away with. Was that that's what Alfred brought was sort of a settled, a settled state where finally things calmed down a bit. I mean, is that fair enough?
1: Yeah, and you know, when he died, he was succeeded by his son, who was succeeded by his son. I mean, after that, it gets. May his grandson, sort there were there were a few killings after that, but um his legacy was was remarkable, and then that's why the thing that Cuthbert says you and your and your descendants will rule this land, and that, and you know, his line did continue you know up until 1066.
0: Can I just ask you about that? because so after Alfred, his immediate descendants, they they basically take over the whole of England, yeah, it's Athelstan and Ethellyde. so that's great. But then don't the Vikings make a comeback? We have King Canute, um, yep. and then then we have the comeback of comebacks. I don't know if the Normans are strictly Vikings, but you know feel like they're Viking adjacent.
1: They they definitely I mean I think the Normans are more French than Vikings, really. I mean, both culturally and probably genetically, but they they definitely still maintained a lot of Viking culture, that their you know, their warships were still basically Viking. Um
0: so what's left? Of Alfred after after that.
1: Well, I mean, so this the first book it covers Alfred Simon until the time of Edgar. So Edgar was his, his great-grandson. So he's the king at towards the end of the 10th century. And by this stage, so you know, Edward's son and daughter, Ethelfred and Edwards, between them conquer all of all of Mercia. They take over the whole East Midlands, they drive the and the East Anglia, and they drive the Vikings out. And then his grandson, Athelstan, in 927 conquers Northumbria and he's the first king of England then so all of what basically pretty much the border of what is modern-day England is established and he, in fact he conquers much of Scotland and, and he had, and the Welsh recognize he's basically as the sort of you know the, the main leader of Britain and that and that's why you know the story of Arthur might reflect him so Athelstan again was a very great very much like Alfred in the sense he was a great patron of learning I mean he was much more he was obsessed with books I mean he collected books and he loved books and his main picture of him which we have is him being presented with a book (laughs) um i mean he was as great a figure as alfred but and we actually something we can probably guess at because from naming patterns future kings tend to name their sons after the most prestigious predecessors so we're guessing because ethelred's the unready's first king son was called athelstan athelstan must have been a very prestigious Thing. It's like after Richard III, there are no more King Richards, right? Or there's no more King Johns. <laughs> up. If, you're a, if you're a successful king, you did it. Uh, Athelstan's sort of star fades in the later medieval period. It becomes less well known. And it's just because there aren't enough, there isn't really the sort of biography to keep him. Uh, Alfred's biography it stays in the monastery, and then a 16th century Archbishop Canterbury, Matthew Parker, discovers it. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the monasteries were destroyed, but he He's really obsessed with medieval history. He keeps a lot of stuff. He gets this published eventually. The life of Alfred. Well, unfortunately, the only thing is he he must have actually inserted stuff, which is so frustrating. <laughs> because he went to Oxford, he think he he inserted the stuff that Alfred discovered, invented Oxford. You know, he founded Oxford University. Just a classic Oxford Oxford's, <laughs> the graduate is just so obsessed with his university, He has to mention that. But because of him, our, Alfred's cult becomes much, much more important. But you know, to go back to your. His legacy. So I mean, this book ends with Edgar, because that's the point when the the, the state of England is, is well established. The, the sort of modern coronation dates back to Edgar and all the infrastructure of the, the English state is by that stage. The Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of England is probably the most sophisticated of all of Europe. It's it's very, it's very wealthy, They're very it's very good at collecting taxes. It kind of works in the state. But the, the, the next story is the return of the Vikings. So the Vikings do come back with Canute um, and his his father, Sven, and then Knut ends up basically conquering the country in 1016. And by that stage, the Vikings are Christian, which kind of makes them worse because they're, they're still very violent and they're still very aggressive and keen on conquest, but they have access to... A, you know they have more sophisticated states so the the early vikings have come from this kind of chaotic world of many kingdoms by the time of kenyu there were just three kingdoms which are the modern kingdoms of norway sweden and denmark with england amongst the oldest countries of states in europe and this makes them much more powerful so this later viking invasion is much bigger um, than the original one so yeah they do return and the vikings do end up conquering england but then I mean, and then Alfred's family line returns with Edward confessed, but then again, you know, we all know it ends the Normans, a so sort of unhappy unhappy ending.
0: When you say an unhappy ending, I mean, what I'm never clear about when the Normans come is, do they sort of wipe the slate of Anglo-Saxon culture clean so it's like they never were, or does the legacy sort of persist?
1: That isn't, yeah, I mean... I mean the Normans the Normans basically kept the kind of state infrastructure very simple as it was because it was very good at collecting revenue. And that's all they really wanted. Mm-hmm. The the upper upper class culture was drastically changed, obviously. The language, you know, changed like no other language in Europe because it, it was so Frenchified. You know, our language is about 30% French. And obviously the distribution of land was was massively changed. Very small elite ended up owning, you know, huge amounts. I think like a quarter, or a quarter of the land in England ended up controlled by a very small number of families. That's not to romanticize you know, Anglo-Saxon England. You know, Anglo-Saxon England was in some ways kind of more brutal than, than what followed. I mean, there's a story in the in the peasants' revolt, this romantic vision of the Anglo-Saxon era, in the fourth century, the peasants start ransacking this monastery in, in Hertfordshire, I think they're St. Albans, and they say. We have proof, you know. We're all serfs. It's terrible, but we have proof that back in the time of Good King Offa, we are all free men, and we want we want to find these documents showing that. And obviously, there were no such documents. And also, they wouldn't have been serfs in time for King Offa; they would be slaves. <laughs> the Anglo-Saxon society was between like ten and twenty-five percent slaves. Was, so slavery was widespread, and and you know, the, the vast majority were all, also Anglo-Saxons. I mean, some might be Britons, but the Normans uh, abolished slavery. I mean, they thought slavery was really wrong. Mm-hmm. A, a compassionate, uh, you might. <laughs> by the time the the Doomsday Book, there was a record, and of the thousands biggest landowners in all of England, only two were Anglo Saxons. I mean, so the upper class were completely replaced. The nation as a whole probably weren't. They just would have eventually started speaking a more French version language. But then eventually, you know, the Anglo Norman rulers, you know, obviously, would start to speak English by about. I think probably by about 1200, they were, I mean, they were certainly speaking as much English as French by that stage. And then they started to eventually identify more with the Anglo-Saxon predecessors. I guess this becomes much more formalized by the time Edward I is making, he, you know, he was the first post-conquest king to have an Anglo-Saxon name because his father, Henry III, was very obsessed with Edward Confessor and, and rebuilt Westminster Abbey, which was Edward Confessor's. And wants to give his son, uh, you know, an English name. And so by that age, I think the sort of Anglo-Saxon legacy. But you know, lots of um, most, you know, <laughs> most of the Anglo-Saxon names don't make a comeback. There aren't many wolves So I don't know. I've, I've never met an Ethelwulf or Leofwine or something. I, I think in the second book, I, I make a list of all the Harold Godwinson's brothers. I forget what they're called: Gwyn, Leofwine, Knot, And then you know, compare them with William the Conqueror's children's names robert richard henry so you know
0: this is a huge problem i have reading history is that when the names are unfamiliar you know anglo-saxon history i just get so confused and i get the same when i'm trying to read arabic or chinese history because i'm not familiar with the names i just find it really hard to follow
1: as long as like the baddie has a different his name begins with different letters the goodie i can like vaguely understand yeah it's very very confusing i mean and that's yeah i mean i try to skim over you know the dark ages the When they all sort of fight each other, and it's literally like four kings of East Anglia get killed in a row, and it's like they've all kind of got the same name. Yeah, it's (laughs) it becomes a lot clearer from, although it becomes even the opposite. You know, the 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 War of the the Roses, which is the fifth book, like they've only all got three names, so that's the opposite problem because it just becomes (laughs) kind of maddening to know who's who.
0: Well, I, I mean, my only other observation was that maybe if the Vikings would have won. Particularly if the Swedes would have won, maybe we would have had more sensible COVID regulations. So I, uh, you know, I'm sort of.
1: There, there is a, you know, there is a serious question about how much would Anglo-Saxon culture have remained Scandinavian-dominated because it was very heavily, you know, you've got an Anglo- It was part of, you know, under Canutes, England was was part of an empire which part of, with Denmark and Norway, and it was very attached to that world. But then after 1066, it shifted to to sort of French domination. I mean, I think most historians would say that's probably going to happen anyway because France was just so so culturally dominant by that stage for loads and loads of different reasons. It was bound to have some influence. I mean, even lots of the words, French words in the English language arrived before the normal conquest. I mean, I think bacon is the one I can think of. That had already, that's a French word, but that had already brought over before 1066. Yeah, so we ended up becoming basically French. I mean, so Alfred's last surviving male descendants in the meta line was ed gaffling who was only 13 in 1066 he was a proclaimed king in london but he was just a boy and so he didn't have the strength but i mean he eventually rose in rebellion against um, william the conqueror but again this is the strange thing with normans you know william just said i think he gave him like a hundred pound fine or something <laughs> so don't do that again you know they would they were the normans were very kind of moderate in many ways They they didn't execute other noblemen like the Anglo-Saxons did there wasn't lots of blinding and gouging and all this kind of stuff which went on yeah he just said yeah fine just don't do that again and his his line eventually died out anyway through through William the Conqueror's son Henry he married an Anglo-Saxon princess so the royal family are all descended from Alfred in that sense anyway so i mean we all are eventually but you know i think his, his legacy on founding a sort of nation state is is really unparalleled in English history that's why i always think find him quite heroic figure but I suppose I also can do that because of the kind of very, very thin amount of sources. He, he remains a, enough of mystery to stay a hero. We don't know his, you know his dark side, really.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's that's it for Alfred today. Um, do you want to talk about, I mean, you, you have so many things going on. You've got the Canon Club. You've got your books. You've got mostly, you know, the big the big thing is your substack, I guess. Do you want to just mention a few of these?
1: you really plug the substack. That's my main bread and butter. I sort of post things about twice a week. Um, People ask me what I write about. I suppose it's current affairs, but I always write when I write about current affairs with a sort of historical angle because that's always been my kind of passion. And I think that kind of gives modern events some focus and it makes them more interesting. I mean, on on the books thing. I mean, this is
0: just just remind us what your Substack's called.
1: Oh, Wrong Side of History. Yeah, I should mention that repeatedly, shouldn't I, from China? To... Yeah, Wrong Side of History, Substack. So Google that and you'll find it. Um, yeah, so that's been going two years. So that's yeah, that's really fun. And this book is a UK reprinting of, uh, well, it's, it's quite a lot different from the, the original came out in America uh, like eight years ago. I think it's about 30% human material. But it was originally sort of, planned. I wanted to make a, somewhere sort of in between like children's history and real history. I wanted to sort of it's something that's light and for beginners, but which I think it was originally young adult nonfiction. Else, but you know, it's, it's for grownups as well. But just for people who want to sort of get the basics. And yeah, and it goes. There's five of them. And it goes up to the War of the Roses.
0: They're not lightweight. They're not horrible histories. They're they're pretty. They're pretty serious. I mean, they're they're introductions, but they're but they're serious introductions.
1: Yeah, I mean, horror history is all about yeah, like Bogey and poo and stuff like that. Although I love the, I love the, the show <laughs> because they're very influenced by Blackadder, so it's that kind of humour. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I wanted to bring funny because you know I obviously I've said this before in loads of blogs, but I, you know I think of history as just it's just a big kind of black comedy, right? and there's, there's there's so much that's funny about it. I mean, yeah, I mean it's it's if you see it as a sort of one sort of big farce with lots of sort of you know, weak and fragile human egos, then I just think it makes more fun. And, you know, med- the medieval, the stories of, like a lot of people, I suppose, I was first introduced to story by the sort of medieval stories of kings, which is a kind of great way to get into the subject of history. I used to, you know, love stories of like kings fighting each other and killing each other and battling to take the throne and and the aesthetics of, of the medieval era just always seemed really magical when I was a child. And, the more I read about them, I'm realizing how, how really awful and hard it was, it's kind of funny. Also, partly, it's got, I, I find it's, it's kind of reassuring for people who are very gloomy about the world because, it's like, our lives are incredibly like easy and good compared to how it was for for most people.
0: We should be happy for sure. Uh, our lives are so much richer. I mean, just uh, in so many ways. I was I was just reading a book the other day about antiseptic in, in medical operations and that had come in just a few years after anesthetic. And that's you know, that's what, you know, sometime in the 1840s or 50s or something like that. I think, my God, just yesterday.
1: I uh, I did read a book about history of medicine and some of the the operations before that. And it just it's just how could how could people enjoy that? But yeah, you know, mm. there was certainly wasn't that in, in Alfred's time. He'd just, he'd just be dead.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, Ed West. that has been a pleasure. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you have the time, then a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever it is, that would be fantastic. Uh, and generally, if you, if you have any feedback at all, do feel free to drop me uh, a line. My email is hog dot russell at gmail.com and that's two g's two s's and two l's okay that's it i really hope you enjoyed it and i hope you'll be listening again next time so bye for now